Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience. George Monroe, welcome back to the Center of the Universe. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Well, yeah, glad to be back, actually. So. Yeah, no, I appreciate you doing this, man. You are episode 170, which I think means like 24 weeks ago. Is that, has it been that long? It hasn't been it's, that long. I don't know. It's been it's been a minute. Yeah, it's definitely yeah. been a minute. But anyway, we we you had mentioned uh, something unique about you and your family, and I said, well, let's let's hold that for a separate episode because I think that stands alone. Uh, and so we 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 had a good conversation. We learned a lot about you. I, I enjoyed the conversation. Uh, all the good things about your your uh, personal story, and and a couple of things maybe not so great for you personally. Yeah. Uh, but the, I don't want to spoil this, but I, I, I do want to start with how old were you when you found out this uh, interesting fact about your family? So it's, 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 it's not. How do I say this? It's rather I would say it's probably nuanced, right? Because it's like it's one of those types of things if you if in my family, you know, the older folks didn't talk about a whole lot of stuff, mm. right? You knew that there were touchy topics when you would ask a question and get a, either a stern look or, like, we don't talk about those things, right? And so down in Charlottesville, Albemarle County, on the way to my great-grandmoms, um, there's a sign that, that James Monroe's Highland that said, you know, basically said that. It said, you know, welcome to Ashlawn Highland, home of President James Monroe, right? So, of course, me being a kid, talking six, seven, eight years old, and I'm like, hmm, I'm just not learning how to spell my name at school. And then when I ride past that sign every day, I'm like, that says Monroe. And I'm like, you know, of course, I would say with dad or grandma or whatever, you know, um, that sign says Monroe. Like, is that something to do with us? And then immediately, like, well, we don't, we don't talk about that. <laughs> no, <laughs> right. So of course that stuck with me um, growing up, and you know, of course, when my kids are kind of coming along same route, and all I can tell them is, well, yeah, I used to ask that same question, and I guess, but you know, as 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 when we got older, as I got older, you know, I could ask the hard questions and you know talk to my dad. He's like, yeah, we know, we we know that there's a link there. We know that you know. We're family, you know what I'm saying? Oh, our family was up there. But it wasn't until recently that we started getting into actual conversations uh, with the older folks. You know, they they call it in my family, um, listening to conversations under the windowsill. Mm -hmm. So you're eavesdropping on stuff that you shouldn't be eavesdropping on. And they would talk about, you know, that topic sometimes. And, uh, you know, so basically the, the, the oral history goes that James Monroe is the progenitor of the Monroe family. Uh, in Central Virginia, having had, you know, children with his enslaved people. And so our family is interesting in that uh, we also link to the Hemings family. Oh. Um, so, you know, the, the oral story goes, you know, Jefferson was a mentor to Monroe during the 1770s, 80s in law. And so Monroe spent a lot of time in Monticello um, you know, learning law from Jefferson. Uh, and, and then, of course, um, you know, he was, I, I, I would imagine, in the politics and everything at that particular point, 
And so him and Jefferson spent a lot of time together. And so the story, you, you all know the story about Jefferson and Sally Hemings. Well, Sally Hemings had a daughter named Thinia Hemings. I mean, excuse me, had a sister named Thinia Hemings. And the story goes that Monroe and Thinia had a thing. Mm. Right? And it wasn't one of those types of things that you hear about in slavery where you have white overseers or white masters taking taking advantage of their female slaves and producing children. This was a situation where they were in love. And so there wasn't any sort of rape or anything like that. And so there were children involved based upon the story of our family. And our family comes from that union. And so it gets it gets interesting in that, um, you know, when you get into Ancestry.com and you do your DNA testing, you know, I share DNA results with the Hemings family and I share DNA results of descendants of the Monroe family. So I have white, I have white family members, blonde hair, blue eyed, that share the same DNA. And I've spoken with them, right? Blood cousins. So you know, you know the scenario, right? If it looks like a duck and it smells like a duck, it's a duck. And so in this particular situation, um, you know, a childhood curiosity kind of, you know, birthed in me trying to figure out, like, specifically who I am, what, how do I tick, what makes me tick, what are some of the different experiences, shared or otherwise, that make me who I am. And so, you know, it kind of, to answer your question in a long about way, I learned about this, you know, I knew about the Monroe name, seven, eight years old, but it wasn't really until... I would say probably six or seven years ago that I really, you know, decided to dig deep into it and really fully explore it. And then, of course, we talked about um, me working with uh, Highland Plantation, um, the, the, the museum at this point, to really uncover the story. And so that story really begins uh, six years ago with Highland and uncovering the Monroe history and the linkages to his uh, enslaved, well, his the descendants of the enslaved. And so it's a lot to unpack there. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I had no <laughs> idea uh, your great-grandmother times, I don't know what the number is, was Sally Hemings' sister. Yeah, Dania Hemings. Uh, was the – I mean, they actually had a relationship, right? It, it's, and, that's, and, that's, relationship. and that's the – yeah, that's the oral family history. That's, that's our family history. That's what was passed down. <laughs> and if I could spend a little time there, <clears throat> when we talk about oral history, like we're talking in my family in particular, I was out for, for a portion of my life. I was raised by my great grandfather, great, excuse me, my great grandmother. She died at the age of 99, a couple months shy of her 100th birthday in 2000, in the year 2000. Her husband, my great grandfather, was the son of an enslaved person that worked as a slave in Highland. Mm. So think about how that type of longevity is really not all that distant when you think about, um, we know people talk about six degrees of separation. So in history, we always focus on secondary, primary and secondary source information. So in this particular instance, it is likely that my grandmother had conversations with my great-grandfather and his father being that she was born in 1900, my great-great-grandfather, who was the enslaved person, died in 1914. You see what I'm saying? And yeah. 
they were married. I think she got married at the age of 16. So during that time, she had a chance to actually spend time with him, you know, and spend time with his son who would have known him the best. And so these stories get passed down. So when they say things like, oh, yeah, well, that's that's your grandfather or, yeah, we're kin to them. Like, you're more likely to believe someone who is pretty much one or two generations removed versus someone who's basically kind of getting an ancestry and at this particular point, maybe five or six, seven generations removed from the from the information that they're seeing. So the, the good thing for me was I was able to take a lot of what I heard from my oral history, back it up through facts. You know what I'm saying? Looking looking through the census records, going to the courthouses. And then the then the then the teaser was, what does your DNA say? Right. And so even though I am, I guess, seven, six, six or seven generations removed from that. You know, I have family members that are like right within range. And so when you get your when you get everything tested, it's like it, it'll come back and it'll say, well, yeah, you have these folks and you have those folks that are kin to you. And then it gives you that range. And then it's like, OK, well, if we're cousins and, it's, and it looks like our, our common ancestors from six generations ago, then it starts to, at some point starts to add up. But, you know, with, with stories like this, it's like. You want to make sure that all of your stuff and all of your de- all of your facts are in a, in, are detailed enough, and and build upon the other because people love their presence. They don't want to they don't want to think that you know there was some level of impropriety with them, or that you know these these men weren't men of their times. And so it's 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 good for me because I do know that there was love shared between them, right? And I'll I'll, I'll give you a trivia question during this podcast, and that is. Where do you think Thinia Monroe, excuse me, Thinia Hemings is buried? Any 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 thoughts? Uh well, Monroe is buried in Richmond, right? Monroe she, is buried in Richmond. But she, she buried, died, she died at the age of 28. Is she buried at Monticello or, or Highland? She's buried at Monroe Hill on the University of Virginia's campus. Oh wow. Where James Monroe had his residence. Wow. Wow. <laughs> That's that. I mean, that's love, right? <laughs> and so, um, and then, and then there's then there's written correspondence, right? There's written correspondence that says that upon learning of her death, Monroe was downtrodden and brokenhearted and and distraught. So you know, when we talk about being distraught, you you're talking about being emotional, right? So oh, yeah. for me, it's like even though they couldn't legally have been married at that time. You can tell just through what we understand, there was love there. Go ahead, Kevin. <clears throat> we lost Kevin for a second. Kevin, did you have a question? No, I'm back. Well, yeah. So, how many kids did she died at 28? 28, 29, right after childbirth. Just so one, last, one child. Of, of her, no, she had five. Five of her last okay. child. Okay. She's like five or six, I think we counted. Um, four or five, and I'm, I'm kind of going from memory. I don't have my notes in front of me, but the last child is really not a whole lot of information about. And we believe that that last child was the was the male Monroe, right? Um, and keep in mind, James Monroe had one son uh, who died early in age, so he didn't have any male living heirs, only daughters, except for who we believe was my grandfather, my my. One of my, one of the greats that was born and then also gave birth to the rest of the Monroe family. So I believe that there is a generation missing in between uh, because I've been able to trace the family back to um, 1789. 
and that's the year that she died. Mm. So, so, George, in your family, were you the only one really pursuing this starting a few years ago, or has it been sort of a family effort? So, so great question. So, since since it's like the first day of Black History Month, um, and in African American history, and also in African history, was getting back to like the tribes and the villages and things of that nature. Within each tribe, there is a role of a person called the griot. The griot is responsible for kind of documenting the history, documenting the, the births and the deaths of the family and, and another tribe. And so the griot is not like something that you just say, you know what, I'm going to do this. The griot is actually kind of chosen. You know what I'm saying? And it's, and it's kind of weird. It's like, you know, I didn't ask to become this, but it was like, you know, you fast forward to the 21st century. I'm what we refer to as the historian, but that's always been traditionally within the African communities. That's always been a special role to the family or to the village. And so there's always one that comes before you to pass it down the information. So in my particular case, I've had two older cousins that's, that said, hey, you know, we see that there's an interest in you. So you, you're it. You're the guy. And I'm like, what do you mean? So you're the guy to carry this legacy, carry this family history. And so um, one cousin by the name of Cousin Dwight, he passed away last year um, at the age of, I think, 79, 78. And um, he gave me the history, right? Um, before him, there was another cousin um, who documented um, my great-great-grandfather's. She was actually the, the daughter-in-law to my great-great-grandfather. So she was a physical witness to him walking this earth, you know, him and his son that she married. And so she had written down all the history, too. And so all that information was getting passed down from one person to the next and now to me. And now I'm raising up one of my kids, um, you know, that's got a strong interest in the family. And I'm telling him and he's already able at being like 12 years old. He can tell you who the family is all the way back to 1810. Wow. Along with different, you know examples of you know some of the relevant facts about history you know um you know and some of the unique stories even and so i have other family members that are like wow we want to know it so i document it and i socialize it, and that's what this is about so you know it, it's, it's 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 to answer your question you have to have a strong desire for this but it acts this role is that it actually chooses you versus anything else and it goes from one generation to the next. Yeah, it's it sounds like your 12-year-old has a lot of natural curiosity around the family history. So yeah. I, it sounds like you've chosen well the, the next the next griot. And, and it's pretty cool, right? Because um we I was interviewed by um NPR. And um so the NPR came down to the old home place. We walked the cemetery and this and that. And you can actually hear my kid at the age of like six, seven years old. And he's like, Daddy, that tombstone says Monroe. Is he kin to us? And you can hear him on the radio, right, asking that question, like, during the interview. And it's it's pretty slick because then we get to talking, and he's like, okay, I get it. And so-and-so and so-and-so. So it's it's a really neat, like, you know, listening session when you hear, like, the little boy asking questions about his family like that, you know, because he's, you know, he's interested. He's got it. So subconsciously, subconsciously or consciously, that's when you knew maybe he was going to be the next griot. Yeah, yeah. For sure. Go ahead, Kevin. No, I was saying that's that's it's almost like history repeating itself. That's George as an eight year old. Yeah, that's the question. Hey, what's yep. going on? Yeah, that's yep. pretty cool. 
So you put, the, you put it together, man, and there it is. Yeah. You uh, we talked to NPR. You had mentioned you talked to BBC and the French equivalent. I, I can't remember what that is. How yeah, did, Le Mans. How did the yeah. word get out to the NPR's, BBCs of the world? So it, it all kind of started with um, the NPR article, right? So that was the first one. And, you know, then the Washington Post heard about the NPR story. And the next thing you know, there was a, a television camera from WUSA Channel 9 in D.C. They came down and, you know, did a did a did a did an interview with me. And then it was like word of mouth. Um, I did a lot of um, uh, projects. Right. So I worked with the National Trust for Historic Preservation on um, properly telling the story of slavery in public spaces like museums and things of that nature and how to how to tell it effectively. And so then that was also there was also work linked to the Southern Pop Southern Poverty Law Center. And then, of course, that work was done with some very prominent historians and academics from all the major universities. We're talking from Yale, uh, Women Mary and all these different places. And so once we published that that rubric, you know, that, you know, speaking engagements came, um, you know, requests for interviews came. And then it was like as the research was picking up steam, it was like all of a sudden then there's international press. You know, because uh, James Monroe was a huge statement and very popular in France. So, you know, uh, it's funny because I went to school with an exchange student when I was in the second grade and she was from France. And so the cool thing is we were already friends on Facebook and she was living in France. She said, you know what? I just saw you on TV and I just read about you in the paper. What is going on? So her husband had happened to work for the BBC. Oh, wow. Right. So he, and, and, and his BBC coverage is basically BBC, you know, they basically cover the world. So his particular segment covered all of the French speaking countries in Africa. Mm. Right. So it was like, OK, well, we can take your story and then we can share it across Africa. Right. So and then, of course, with Monroe um, being a, um, you know, a, um, you know, a proponent of moving enslaved Free, freely enslaved, you know, freely, uh, free, free African-Americans, you know, whoever wanted to go back to Africa, you know, he has set up Liberia for that. And the capital of Liberia is what? Monrovia. Yeah. So he's very popular in Africa as well. And, you know, so uh, especially within that particular country, because Liberia is basically found is a founded country from freed slaves that were that left America and went back and set up their own country. So, you know, that so that word got out really fast. And so, you know, it and then, of course, the New York Times came calling and that's when it really hit uh, because of the, the New York Times readership. And uh, the funny thing is where I work at Citizens, it, <laughs> I had a guy that used to work there. Um, he walked by my office probably five times. Right. Because he because I was on the first I was on the front cover of, of the newspaper for when the story ran. Right. I was on the front page. And uh, the guy walked by my office like five times and he kept looking and he kept looking. <laughs> and I was like, can I help you? He said, like, he said, I don't mean to bother you. I know you're busy. He said, well, you want to, well, you want to cover the New York times this morning? I'm like, yeah, that's me. That's me. He starts cracking up. He said, I thought it was you. I just didn't know if I, he said, either you have a really good twin or there's a twin out there or it would have to be you. So I thought I would ask. I'm like, yeah, man. I said, I noticed you walked by the office probably five, six times. So I figured that was probably it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I I can't imagine you grow up in Charlottesville, 
would ever think that you would be interviewed by the BBC or uh, be able to cover the New York Times or the front page. Yeah, I think those folks thought I would end up another place. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so the descendants of Jefferson and Hemings, what what name uh, what was the predominant name from that family? Like Monroe sounds like a, a predominant name from your family. Did the yeah. Jefferson name, was that? The- was it passed? Because, you know, remember, Jefferson never acknowledged his children. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So, so you know, most, and a lot of times, you know, they, um, the enslaved sometimes would carry the name of the of of the overseer or the or the landowner or excuse me the the, the master, uh, but in this particular case, none of the families leaving Ashlawn carried the last name except for the Monroes, and he, and we know why they did. Yeah, what uh, is, is there a griot in the Sally Hemings uh, family, a living uh, descendant? So there is. Um, her name is uh, Gail Jessup White. And uh, she's written a book called uh, Reclamation. Um, and she's uh, she's been a great resource. She used to be a Monticello historian working at at Monticello. But she is a, she is a descendant. She's a Hemings descendant. And she's chronicled that history you know, quite a bit. And then, of course, um, that, and that's within their family. But then, of course, Monticello's done a great job as far as, you know, hiring staff that had a passion for this stuff and um, you know, they, they have this project called getting, getting the word, uh, getting the word, uh, getting the word or something like that, uh, where, you know, um, they chronicle the, the African American experience at Monticello. And so if you think about the fact of Ashlawn and Monticello being pretty much a couple miles away from each other, it's, it's was well known in documenting, uh, that Monroe and Jefferson shared, their enslaved workforces. So sometimes they'd be in Monticello. Sometimes they'd be at, you know, Ashlawn, um, depending upon, you know, sometimes uh, they were hired out to work at the University of Virginia when Jefferson was building Virginia. And so uh, the University of Virginia has recently uh, developed the, um, the memorial to enslaved workers. And so when you go there, it's a trip to see your ancestors' names engraved in that monument. That's cool. You know? Yeah, yeah it's, so. it's it's wild, George, that it, it takes this long for us to get to a place where there's effective, accurate telling of, of what the heck happened. I, I went to yeah. the University of Virginia and it, I didn't give it a moment's thought of, of yeah. who built, who built uh, the buildings on that on those grounds. And if you look at some of the bricks of the older buildings towards the lawn, you can see the fingerprints of where the enslaved made those bricks. Same thing in Monticello. You can see their fingerprints in the bricks still. Wow. Wow. That's, That's cool. unbelievable. I, I missed it. What's the griot uh, from the Hemings family? Uh, her name is uh, Gail Jessup White. So do you talk to Gail at all? Because Yeah. So, you, so you, you, the Hemings sisters make the two of you related, right? We will be related, yeah. 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 The interesting thing is I met Gail at the uh, the UVA Bicentennial. Remember, they had that big to-do up there. Yeah. And so um, I had a chance to do a speech in front of 20,000 people. <laughs> That's yeah. crazy, man. Yeah, it was nuts. I mean, it was like, but I, of course, I couldn't see him, right, because all the lights and everything was shining in my face. But it was like, you know, we were told that once those speeches and everything were done, we got a standing ovation for about five minutes. And that's awesome because all we did is we talked about, you know, UVA, UVA did his best to, you know, really recognize the descendants 
of the enslaved people that worked there and, and, and helped build the university. And so we had an opportunity to kind of share who we were. And, you know, the biggest thing for me was the fact that even though my great, great grandfather and his father before him couldn't read and write, when you look down through, you know, the descendants, now you have doctors, lawyers, professionals, uh, judges, educators, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, you know, like entrepreneurs, like, and all of this based upon one man's vision, you know what I'm saying? That is that his family will, will grow and, and, and do the best that they could. And it all started in that one room cabin on a dirt floor down in uh, Albemarle County. And now look at, at the lineage that's being left. So, you know, it, it, it was just an amazing story, an amazing time to be able to kind of share that at UVA, you know. And in fact, I've had sisters. I have a brother that graduated from UVA and my younger sister graduated from UVA, wow. you know. That's, so that's it's a, like that's a wild full circle thing. Man. Yeah, it's full. It's definitely full circle. I mean, I, I got recruited to go there. I just didn't want to go. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So it was just like, um, yeah, it's just an amazing story when you think about it. I spoke in front of 20 people this morning. <laughs> 20,000 20, it's kind of hard to fathom right That's i mean yeah it, it, you know to, to, it's, it's 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 empowering too right because you know and that because you have people looking at you it, it, you know they're, they're checking out your voice you know what i'm saying this is just an amazing thing so they're, yeah. they're there to hear you and a couple other folks right 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 yeah because wow. all because all of us descendants got a chance to hit the stage, and they, so they laid eyes on us. You know, it, it was it was good. So, as as a griot, and and you're the you're the griot for the family at the moment. Yeah. I, I know you're working on uh, bringing your son up to speed. At what point do you stop being a, a griot? Is it at death, or is there a point where I, you I would I would say that you I would say that you never stop, right? Yeah. Because history is still being created as, as we live on this earth, as we walk it out. Like history still being created. So, you know, whatever, whatever the stories I have at, at my point of leaving this earth will be what gets passed on. You know, yeah. so what, what's next? What are you focused on the next uh, six to 12 months or so? Uh, I'm trying to finish up this book that I've been promising for the last six years. Hmm. You know, as far as my, my journey and, and learning who I am and what makes me tick. Um, I'm on chapter six, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit more than halfway through. And I really started getting into, you know, kind of, you know, kind of cover the backdrop of the history of our family. And I, I basically run it full circle from you know, really kind of being an African-American male who grew up on the farm. And then, of course, I run in and I get into, you know, city life a little bit, street life. I ended up in a college and I ended up in the military and then back to college. And then I go into corporate. And now all I want to do is hunt and fish. <laughs> right so it, it goes full circle and then it's like and then of course you know I'm, I'm i'm going to be focused on you know really looking into like modern day events like this like think about it um and, and you know i i know we're, we're free to talk about what we need to talk about but it's kind of like when you think about the african-american experience the, the enslaved experience the first thing they did is they took away our history our culture so that way we didn't have anything that we could actually uh, lean back on in terms of empowering ourselves. Right. So basically the only thing we knew is what was told to us and 90% of it was lies. Right. Now you fast forward to, you know, today, February 1st, and in Texas and in Florida, 
there is an attack on black history in terms of being able to teach it in the schools mm. or it's being censored. Right. So it's kind of like, well, you when you when you remove a, 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 an organ, a group's ability to learn about themselves, learn about what makes them great, learn about what empowers them, then what else do they have except a watered down history? And so it's, it's unfortunate that even in the 21st century, we have politicians on an agenda to basically try to do the same tactics that were utilized during slavery, which is, was not to allow you to learn about your contributions to society. And so that's, that's, that's tough. And so I'm, I'm, I'm in the process now of really thinking about, well, number one, what is my response to that? Um, being a trained historian, knowing that, you know, what I know here and, and, and what I've learned through my, my, my trials and, and study and, and things like that, you know, knowing that I, I know a lot of this stuff and knowing that, yeah, they're going to be watering down history for political gain. And it's like, how do I respond to that? Because I think that there, there needs to be something said to that. And I feel like I'm in a better position than any to, to actually speak to that. And so what does that look like? And so that's what I'm going to be focused on over the next several months is, you know, what does that look like? And how do we how do we take back that narrative? Yeah, politics at its core is about gaining an advantage for the sake of attaining power and holding yeah. on to power and amassing power. It's a very selfish, horrible human trait. And I will tell you, I'm, I'm, I'm a history major. I'm not a historian, but I appreciate history. And yeah. what I appreciate about it is the accurate telling of what has come before us so we don't make the same mistakes. Right. And, and we seem to be uh, making some of the same mistakes, not so obvious uh, as, as something as evil as slavery, but uh, it, it's still there in, in parts of our country. And, so and shame some politicians for doing that. And so we hear Texas trying to introduce um, uh, language in textbooks that says that slavery was a choice. <laughs> what? And that the enslaved were happy and, you know, they, they understood their role within Southern society. These are the types of things that are being promoted as part of eliminating what they quote unquote call the woke agenda, the woke agenda. And so, you know, it, the, the woke agenda, for example, is nothing different than what we went through in the nineties called the conscious movement. And so that was a, that and so the nineties was marked by uh, an elevated awareness of the African-American experience, whether you want to pepper in police brutality, um, you know, knowledge of self, um, exploring relationships with religion and things like that and really kind of defining your own course and, and challenging everything that you were taught. So in the 90s, we called it the conscious movement. We read a lot of the same books that they're trying to pull out, you know, trying to cover out today. And so it's like, you know, things kind of go in cycles. And so we learn a lot through the music because it wasn't being taught in the schools and whatnot. We had, you know, different specialty centers like the HBCUs, which are now starting to see another resurgence 30 years later, like they saw back in the 90s. Um, teaching certain types of classes to help you understand what, you know, the African-American experience in history was. And so because, you know, what we've always seen, you know, as far as public school systems is that the African-American experience always started with chains and slavery. But it's so much richer and so much deeper than that when you tie it back to a homeland and you learn about kingdoms and and and, and, and inventors and, and um rulers and and just different African life that that can be traced 
to today and you see the connection. And so that's empowering to a group of people that, you know, in many cases can't even tell you who their great, great grandparents were. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. When you say Texas and Florida, you're saying at the state level that's happening. Ron DeSantis just passed, just passed legislation banning books that have not been vetted by the, by a state identified librarian at his choosing. He's banning books. It's, It's like a low level felony if a teacher is caught um, teaching um, a curriculum in a classroom that has not been approved by the state. That's that's uh, local communities should be able to decide that for themselves. Right. He's already he's already put it put the law in order and, and they're talking about it as we speak. And so it's like, you know, and then, you know, and he could potentially become president one day. Well, I, we don't have to get into politics too, too deeply. I don't think he's going to make it all the way to uh, that day. But we'll, we'll see. What, but, man, but, that's but, not, know, these types of things, amazing. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing to me. Like, so that we're still having these types of conversations. And of course, socialization begins in the home. So it's like, and that's one of the things that I've already kind of learned. I'm like, even if they don't want to teach in the schools, you know, there's a plethora of information out there that, you know, people who want to know these types of history, they can they can they can get that information. So it's like, you know, there are ways around this ignorance is what I call it. So, yeah. Hey, George, I, and I hate to bring the sports aspect into it, but that's just what I think about. Um, you mentioned the resurgence of um, historically black colleges. I, I, I think that seeing some of the athletes that are five star athletes now starting to go to historically black colleges has been awesome to see. We. Yeah. We talked about this on my my golf trip about ten years ago. We were like, if if just one kid would go there and just kind of lead the masses, I mean, historically black colleges would be all of a sudden would be on the front page of everything. They'd be the powerhouse, and unfortunately, it's because of sports. Right. But it would drive it would drive more eyes and more ears to what's going on there, and and maybe open up some. Uh, some perceptions open up some people's brains and, and heads. I know sports can be, you know, trivial, but it also can, can lead to some education as well. So yeah. hopefully that continues. Yeah. Um, you know, I was really pulling for Dion at, uh, at, at uh, Jackson state, you know, but at the end of the day, it's like, you know, you still gotta, you know, you still gotta get paid for what you work. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, money, money's going to talk, you know, you know, and he never signed up for, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> that type of assignment, you know, where you're going to single-handedly, you know what I'm saying, go in and 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 try to recruit all the five stars out there and hopefully win a championship with at an all-black school. But the good thing is he laid a blueprint on how it can be done. Yeah. You know, he was well on his way. So, you know, you're right. Like, folks like Travis Hunter and a couple of other these big-name stars you know, starting to go down to these schools, you know, that's just a wonderful thing. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I mean, those those sorts of like rare athletes at a a, uh, an HBCU, you end up uh, you you end up having to tell the story of of people that have been wrong for uh, a a large part of history, for sure. Yeah. Uh, So, George, I I can't imagine seven years ago, you're just you're a dad, you're a husband, you're you're working, you got a corporate job. You had you, you couldn't have seen any of this coming, could you? No. (laughs) <laughs> and, it, it, and, and here's a funny thing like i just had a conversation with you know the executive director at highland and we're talking about um you know 
getting an audience with the with the president of William and Mary and talking about, you know, how do you, how do you plan to continue on these conversations at the college or at the university? And, you know, what does that look like in terms of, you know, when you think about the contributions of the enslaved to the university, what's your agenda in recognizing them, right? So it doesn't stop at a memorial. Like it needs to be more done. Like, because there's a bunch of descendants of these folks that are walking around here and, you know, you're talking about schools, UVA, $11 billion endowment, right? Women Mary is not too far behind that, if not more. What could you do with $11 billion and marginalized communities in the areas that these descendants still live in? What could you do with that kind of money or part of that money in Hampton? Or in Hampton North? or Norfolk, yeah, or Charlottesville even, right? UVA. Um, so it's kind of like, so... I'm planning on having some conversations. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, doesn't stop at a memorial. Memorial doesn't break undo, you know, structural racism, um, you know, or the structure that racism produced or white supremacy produced, right? So how do we start to undo those things? And how can the university help? So that's where we are now. You know, the other thing is, you know, you got some of the most foremost scholars coming through these walls, coming through these doors, getting degrees and going off and doing big and better things. You still have some professors there that are the foremost experts in their field, anthropology, sociology, history. Like, is there anything that could be done so that way we can start documenting these things properly? You know, yeah, doc documentation and continuing the conversation. Uh, it yes. takes money to continue that drumbeat. It takes right. colleges paying attention and being sincere about it. Yep. Uh, William and Mary was, was built by slaves as well. Mm -hmm. Emphatically. Yep. Um, yeah. And, and Virginia has, uh, a unique part of uh, slave history. I, I think the largest uh, port where slaves came in was Richmond. Hampton. Well, Hampton, Hampton Richmond. Richmond. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And the and second, so and then the next one was New Orleans. So you know, like you know, you had really three major centers. You had Charleston. You had Richmond through through Hampton, of course, and then of course um, you have um, New Orleans. So it's like, you know, this is part of this is part of Virginia in general that where we live is stocked full of history from the revolutionary all the way down. And it's like when we get comfortable acknowledging the fact that black history is also American history, then I think we'll start to make a lot more progressions than what we've that we than what we've been able to. And I think most folks start to become more accepting of, you know, these types of conversations. I mean, they're nuanced and they're ugly and they they stink. But it's like, how do you expect to clean them up if you don't first? Uh, I don't know. So I think that's my kind of that's my voice right now. Like, is uh, try to figure that out. George, talking to William Mary is absolutely one of the places you should, should dedicate some time. Uh, if, if the schools in Virginia, especially the public schools, and yeah. we're talking about institutions that have national, if not international reputations. If we can't get it right at those schools like William Mary, like UVA, mm -hmm. then, uh, yeah, you're focused on the right place. That Those are yeah. absolutely the places. Uh, you should be focused, and, and it sounds like all of us should be focused. How can how can uh, Kevin and and I help? I think I think platforms like this, awesome. You know, because when when you have an opportunity to basically share a story, and you know you have different folks from different walks of life embracing a story and actually giving it a consideration, then I, I think that's that's where it is, right? Because um, it's one thing to, to to watch the news and hear about all of these things going on, 
But then when you get down to like the to the brass tacks and we and we ask the questions and we have the conversation, then it informs, right? And that's what we need. We need need folks to be more informed. And the and the other challenge that I would throw out there too is don't take my word for it. Go research it yourself, right? You know, if I'm talking about certain types of history, then the resources are out there. You know what I'm saying? And then, of course, if you get any sort of feedback from folks listening to the podcast and they want to learn more, I have a reading list and a resource list a mile long that will help individuals kind of get a true understanding of the African uniquely American experience. Okay, you know, from, you know, things that that we had to go through and then, of course, you know, moving from one thing to the next. And then, of course, getting here, you know, the, the, the everything didn't end with slavery. And that's the main thing that most folks need to understand. Right. Because after slavery, you know, you had you had black coats, which basically put African-Americans back in the bondage. And then after black coats, you had the rise of Jim Crow. And then we know that Jim Crow and, you know, the beginnings of the civil rights movement in the, in the 1940s, excuse me, 20s. Um, that lasted until 1965. And then after 1965, going into, you know, uh, 1970s, you start to have this this whole concept on, you know, the war on drugs. Right. Which was targeted disproportionately the African-American communities by pumping the drugs in the communities. And then going into the 1980s, you had redlining the FHA, the discriminatory housing practices. Right. And then you have mass incarceration beginning from the mid 70s all the way up to now. So every time there was progressions that were trying to be made by the African-American community, it was like there was always some sort of social phenomenon that was meant to keep you in bondage. Right. And most folks say get over, but you can't if it's still happening. Now you're dealing with the age of police brutality. Right. And, and even this most recent situation is the abuse of authority based upon white supremacist principles that cause these things to happen. You see what I'm saying? So it's like we all have to think about these things and what the impact on another group is. And so this is this is where we talk about becoming aware, understanding that there are things that's affecting another group. And then we ask the question, well, how can we get in front of it? How can we help? You know, I think the way you help is, is is to promote getting informed. And then that way, when you have the information that's required, now you have to make targeted decisions about how you want to respond to it. And I think that's where we begin the conversation is once once everybody agrees and understands that there is a problem going on out there. Yeah, uh, George, I, I, I don't speak for all people that look like me, but I think for a lot of people, it's just easier to be ignorant. And I, I would encourage anybody to... Uh, take some time to do some some fairly basic research to, to yeah. learn more about uh, the collective history of America, which obviously includes African-Americans and slavery. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, man. Hey, look, I, I this was not intentional uh, for February 1st. It just so happens we were scheduled <laughs> to play, uh, but I'm, I'm glad it hit on February. What? Do you want me to pretend like it's, it's not accurate? Yeah. I, I think we did a good job there. Oh. Yeah. I'm uh, kidding. It's all good. Hey, look, you're a friend of the podcast. Anytime you want to come back on and talk, uh, if we want to connect in a few months, a year, whatever, uh, we'd love to continue the journey. When the book comes out, I'd love to have you back on for sure. Sure. And and George, I think you noticed my name on here, That Flippin' Sports Podcast is, is the brother podcast, sister podcast, what do you want to call it to this one? <laughs> We'd love to have you on there just to talk sports one time. Um, okay. Because that's all we we just – it's it's a lighthearted – just talking about sports, having a good time. We talk about 
um, pop culture and, and all kinds of fun stuff too. But go go ahead, Paul. Hey, George. Uh, only Kevin would take our our heavy conversation and pivot to a frivolous sports podcast. Plug. It's the plug. <laughs> it's absolutely what it was. <laughs> hey, no, I loved having George on this here. And I know this is your podcast, Paul, but um, I loved being a part of it. So thank you um, for letting me be a part of both of these episodes. No, this, this I, appreciate, I appreciate it too. I appreciate the, the opportunity. It's a, you know, of course, you guys are old friends, man. So I, you know, just getting a chance to spend a couple of times with a couple of hours with you guys, man, talking about this stuff is great. Yeah, George, I, if nothing else, uh, I can spread the word for people to get informed and certainly encourage the heck out of you to keep doing what you're doing, man. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us. You can find us at scodopodcast.com.